0: Well, it is really good to be with you. Thank you so much for your prayers for us a few weeks ago. Um, you know, Emma's dad, my wife's dad had a early onset dementia. And so, um, his death was something that we had been expecting and, and preparing for, for quite some time. Um, but then he ended up uh, going home to the Lord uh, much sooner than we expected. And, um, so please continue to, to pray for, especially Emma and her family, um, as they grieve. Uh, I think we're all doing well. It's just, um, it just feels wrong. Her dad's not there with us. Uh, I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Zechariah, wow. Um, Father Aaron, just what a gift you give to all who preach here by having your church go through Zechariah. Um, you guys seen the movie Knives Out? Really good mystery movie. came out a few years ago. I'm not going to give any spoilers this morning, though, if you haven't seen Knives Out by now, you probably wouldn't care if I spoiled it because you probably aren't going to see it. I don't know. Um, but Knives Out, a good film, good mystery. It begins as mysteries so often do with a crime, a murder, right? The, a man lies dead. And then the rest of the mystery is, is kind of unfolding who committed this crime and, and why. And Knives Out has this, this other dimension to it where it's not just figuring out, you know, who wounded this man. Uh, But it's also figuring out uh, or learning about what this man did, the, the murdered one, what he did to ensure that one of the characters received the gift of his inheritance. And that's what gets unfolded as the movie goes on. It's part of why it's so clever. And I say that because our passage in Zechariah has a similar theme. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but it begins with a murder. This unnamed but very important man lies dead in the middle of the city. And the unfolding of this vision actually isn't focused at all on on who did this. That becomes really clear at the beginning. But the focus is on the gifts that the murdered one intends to give even in the moment of his being wounded. And unlike Knives Out, these gifts are not meant for the innocent one in the story. But these gifts are meant for the very ones who took his life, the very ones who wounded him, who murdered him, who caused his death. And what Zechariah sees in this vision is nothing less than Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross. And central to his vision is not guilt or shame, though those are deserved for the people who took this man's life, but central to his vision is God's love. And mercy and forgiveness, even in the moment of his ultimate rejection. How can healing come from a womb? How could God be so kind in this moment of all moments? That is the real mystery of Zechariah's vision, as the wounded one gives three gifts to heal and restore the very ones pierced him, who took his life. And this is encouraging news for those of us this morning who come here stuck in shame, feeling the weight of guilt upon our shoulders, or feeling stuck in patterns of sin that we can't seem to escape. So look with me at these, these three gifts, beginning in verse 10. There's a lot in here, so I really encourage you to have your Bibles open or have your bulletin. So verse 10, Zechariah says, or God says through Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This is the first gift, a new spirit, a spirit of grace, meaning something like warm-heartedness or compassion uh, tenderness, along with this spirit of pleading for mercy, of sorrow, this the spirit of contrition, of a desire to change, of repentance. So why does God say that He's going to give this gift of compassion and repentance? Well, it's because the the murderers are going to realize that they have made a horrible mistake. See the rest of verse ten. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced. They shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is where we find out about the murder, that this unnamed person has been fatally pierced. But do you notice the awkward construction of this sentence? So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, you know, Hebrew scribes who copied this. They thought, you know, maybe someone made a mistake in the past. Because how could, you know, an invisible and all powerful God, how could he suffer injury at the hands of men? Uh, Why would God identify himself as the one who's pierced? Somehow in Zechariah's vision, God and this man are so aligned with each other that to wound one, is to wound the other. And of course, as we read this through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection, it makes perfect sense that Jesus, the perfect representative of God the Father, because he is God's eternally begotten Son, and and, and because he's forever existed as the second person of the one triune God, he came to do the one thing that God cannot do which is to die, to die at the hands of sinful men. And God says in verse 10 that the people will mourn for this man as if he was an only child. The same word used when when God says to Abraham, and we'll read at the Easter vigil, take your son, your only son, Isaac, which interestingly, the Greek, the Septuagint, in both places, translates as beloved. Take your beloved son. They'll mourn for him as a beloved child. Beloved like when the father speaks over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Back to verse 10. They'll weep for this only beloved child as one weeps for a child who is firstborn. Like when Paul writes in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn inheritor over all creation. All of this to underline the atrocity and the the seeming irreversibility of this awful act. But through this wound comes a gift of healing. God says he'll pour out on the house of David and all Jerusalem a spirit of grace compassion, and pleas for mercy. And then verse 11, on that day, this phrase that gets repeated throughout this passage, each time signaling the gift being given by God, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. And you're probably wondering what hadad Riman means and so am I. And apparently so are many. We're not really sure. That kind of got lost to history. The reference to Megiddo, I mean, King Josiah, who is this great king, perhaps the exile wouldn't have happened if Josiah's reign had just been a little bit longer. He died in Megiddo, and so maybe there's some kind of memorial in Jerusalem that, that happened regularly to remember King Josiah. I'm not sure what that phrase is about. That's what I'm saying. But what's clear is that this murder happened in the city of Jerusalem, and it's the people of Jerusalem who bear the responsibility. And so look at verse 12, the land shall mourn each family by itself. And then we get this repetition, the family of David by itself and their wives and the family of Nathan and their wives and the family of Levi and their wives and the family of Shimei and their wives and all the families that are left. So what's, what's the significance here? Why all these names? Well, you know, David, I mean, David, the great kind of the, the paradigmatic king of Israel. Well, and you know that David had sons, and one of those sons is named Nathan. And so here, David and Nathan are representative of the royal family. It's the royals who bear responsibility and mourn. And then you know Levi. Levi Levi's the son of Jacob, and he's the father of the whole priestly caste in Israel. And he had some sons, and one of those sons is named Shimei. And so here, Levi and Shimei they represent the priests, the religious caste and the religious leaders in Israel. And it has the mention of the wives by themselves because apparently in the Mishnah there is this tradition, this Jewish tradition that that during a time of mourning, the genders would be separated. And so that's what's happening there. And then the whole city of Jerusalem gathers in this. And all of this repetition is meant to show that all are implicated. Even the most powerful In Jerusalem, in fact, especially the most powerful, they're the ones that get called out by name. It's the royals, the civic leaders, and it's the religious leaders, and it's everybody who bears responsibility for this man being killed. And the effect of this repetition is to show that the mourning is genuine. This is real contrition. They're not putting on a show, they're genuinely sorry. There's sorrow throughout the city for this murder. And so what do we make of all of this? That sorrow for sin is a gift of God. That's the first gift that's given. Repentance, contrition, desire to change. All of these are a gift of God. And we need to remember this because this this can actually be a source of deep encouragement. Because often, and, and it, when we're stuck in sin, it can feel as if God is very far away from us. And this is where we need to remember that repentance and even that small desire to change is a gift of God's spirit within us. And so I experienced this recently. I was going on a, a high school retreat, you know, with our, our high school students and, uh, and talking to the a girl on the bus who was sitting next to me and, and just kind of asking her, you know, tell me about your spiritual life, you know, what's going on for you. And, and she went on to tell me that she felt very far from God and that there were, and I, I said, well, do you know why that is? She said, I have some ideas. And I said, you know, it's, sometimes it's our sin that can make us feel far from God. And she said, yeah, you know, there are a few things in my life. There are some things that I'm doing that I know I, I shouldn't be doing, but the problem is I don't really want to change. Can any of you relate to that? Like very clearly, you know in yourself what the problem is, but you're not yet convicted all the way that you're ready to part ways with whatever this thing is. And th- so that's where she was. And I said, well, how do you, how do you feel like God feels towards you right now? Like, like if you could see his face, what would his face look like? And she thought about it for a moment and then, and I very quickly said, I, I think he'd feel disappointed. When she thinks about God, she sees someone who's disappointed in her. He feels far away. And, and what I encouraged her is, I said, and I understand that you feel that way, but this is, this is what I want to tell you. That here on this bus ride to the retreat, you would not have told me any of this if God's Spirit was not actively working within you? I know that you feel far from God. I know that you don't feel ready to change certain things in your life, but you would not have even told me as much as you did if God's Spirit were not in you, motivating you, convicting you. Even that little amount, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's Spirit is actually very near to you? Even in this moment where you feel conflicted, Tears began to fall from her eyes. She hadn't considered that God was near to her. And so what I said to her is the rest of this weekend, you're going to be given opportunities to think about these things that you don't know if you want to let go of. And my encouragement to you would be to simply keep doing what you just did. Keep leaning in to that voice saying, share, confess, confess, about precisely where you are right now confess that little amount of conviction and see what the Lord does with that that's the gift that God gives us sorrow over sin is a gift of God and even when you're not ready to let go of sin in your life just lean into that gift and he will provide the strength to go forward he'll always put the opportunity before you and you have to you have to take him up on the opportunity he won't put these words in your mouth. It'll put the opportunity before you. Confess, repent. See what he does with that. The spirit of repentance is a gift. Let's look now at the, the second gift of the wounded one. Look at chapter 13, verse 1, this gift of forgiveness. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Again, that phrase, on that day. On that very day when God's representative is pierced, not only is the gift of sorrow for sin given, but a means of atonement is provided. A means of making things right again is provided by the very one who suffered the injury. This, the image is of a fountain which throughout the scriptures and and even in other literature is is representative of a source of life. And I'm sure you've seen throughout this sermon series that Zechariah, he borrows imagery from other major prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel too had this theme of water throughout his writings that, that God would bring his people home and he would sprinkle clean water on them so that they would be clean from all their uncleanness and from all of their idols, on that day, the day of his wounding, the gift of God is not just repentance, but cleansing, forgiveness of sin. And we live in a culture that demands atonement. We live in a culture that is so good at identifying what's wrong in this world, and that's a good thing, but we're also a culture that's very confused and lost when it comes to how things are made right again. And this concept of forgiveness is scandalous. I know you guys did a sermon series this fall, this very topic of of forgiveness. And so in our culture, we need stories about forgiveness. I mean, ways of of making sense. How is this supposed to look? And so the story that came to mind in thinking about this text, forgiveness in the very moment of a wound, uh, comes from a book. Have any of you read this called Peace Like a River? I think it's by Leaf Anger. Um, if you're from the Midwest, I mean, it's a very Midwestern novel. It proceeds very, very slowly and methodically. And some would say it's boring, but I would simply say it's Midwestern. And uh, if you're from Minnesota, it's very Minnesotan, so you should check it out. In this novel, you know, a boy's reflecting on his father. His father's a good man who's come under hardship around him in his life. He's working at a, as a janitor at a school, not exactly a, a glorious job for your dad to be doing. And one day all the students are in the lunchroom and, and the principal or the superintendent walks into the lunchroom. The superintendent's a pretty evil man and his face even reflects this. He's, he's got boils on his skin and kind of this redness that comes through and he's always sweating and, and angry. And he gets angry at the kids and goes to do something about it. And the superintendent knocks over, you know, this, this tray of, of milk bottles, shattering them. And just at that moment, the boy's father walks in, the janitor, to clean it up. But the superintendent's embarrassed. And so he's going to take out his embarrassment on somebody else. He's going to shift his embarrassment onto somebody else. And so he shifts it onto the janitor, who he's seen walking around the school, muttering to himself. Now, really what the dad was doing was praying but the superintendent in front of everybody shames him accuses him of being a drunk walking around the schools at weird time saying things to himself and the boy says that that most boys have never had to watch something like that most boys have never had to watch as their father was stripped of his livelihood of his dignity in the in, in front of many other people but the cruelty of that moment still impresses him all these years later. And the superintendent fires his father, takes out his embarrassment on this man. And then this moment happens. The father reaches up and so quickly, I mean, you blink and you'd miss it. The father touches the superintendent's face. He said it was almost like a a slap and then it was just, it was gone. And with that touch, the superintendent's face was healed. All of the redness went away. All of the sweat dried up. All of the boils receded. The principal himself didn't understand what was happening. And the boy says, It is not an easy thing to watch a miracle happen. And we think, Oh, we'd love to see miracles. But he says, In this moment, it was not an easy thing to see this miracle happen. Why did my dad heal him? Why did my dad heal the one who had just Insulted him in front of everybody. He said, The injustice of this miracle took my breath away. That's the kind of thing we have happening here. In the moment of this wound, a fountain of healing is opened up. The piercing leads to this fountain of cleansing for the murderers themselves. I mean, the gospel writer John. He quotes this very passage in Zechariah, John chapter 19: "They will look on him whom they have pierced, as Jesus is on the cross, when he tells this story about how Jesus was dead and the soldier brings a spear just to make sure that he's dead, and he pokes the dead body of Jesus in the side, and out of Jesus' side come blood and water flowing." You see, the prophet Ezekiel had, had dreamed that someday there would be a new temple and out of this temple would flow a river and wherever this river went, life would spring up from the ground. Animals would swarm and these trees would come up from this river that, that comes from the temple and these trees would bear fruit and, and those fruit bearing trees would never be out of season. But day in and day out, they would, they would bear fruit. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said about his own body that it's a temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. That's what's happening on the cross. Blood and water flow out. Blood given to us even today in the Eucharist. Blood for the forgiveness of sins. Water and baptism given that we might be cleansed in the very moment of his death comes cleansing, even for the ones who have injured and assaulted. It's incredible. second gift is the gift of forgiveness. Now look at verse 2. It's the final gift of the wounded one. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols of the land so that they will be remembered no more. For the Jews, idols were images used in worship of other gods, gods named Asherah or Baal. And we know them today for the things that these idols promised to provide, money, sex, and power, and influence, and fulfillment. All of these things that can be good in their place, but when they become the thing that our lives are missing, the thing that would bring us happiness, and security, then they become deadly to ourselves and to others. Zechariah says on that day, those things will be cut off. I mean, don't you long for that temptation, just cut off. No more. The things that you struggle with, cut off. No more. Zechariah then says that God will remove from the land the prophets, meaning the false prophets, in the spirit of uncleanness. He's talking about these false prophets that entice the people with these promises of fulfillment, but leave them hurting instead. You see verse 3, If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And what he's referring to is, is you know, this part of the law in Deuteronomy that says, If a prophet is prophesying falsely, he should be put to death. And so the implication here is that even the false prophet's own family will have the discernment to know right from wrong. They're not going to put up with it just because that prophet is their son. And false prophets, you know, they trafficked in false hope, just like they do today. They're the ones who say that that you can go around suffering in this life. The false prophets are the ones who say that your most important job is for you to be happy and that this is what God wants for you too. But the truth is always more subtle than what the false prophets say. You cannot escape suffering in this life, but the Lord will deliver you one day from all suffering. And your most important work is not to be happy, but the Lord can and will satisfy the longings of your heart. We don't use the language of false prophets often anymore. Our prophets, they don't, they don't go around in hairy cloaks like Elijah wore, you know, parading themselves as prophets. They go by other names today. I think the the name that came to mind is influencer. Those might be some of the false prophets today. They don't have a hairy cloak, but they have this, this nice, pleasing background that somehow they figured out how to make you watch that video. And think oh this person knows what they're saying, and they come to us with different voices. You know, there's the shaming voice of the uh, the mommy Instagram influencer that make you feel kind of smug and self satisfied about how you are choosing to parent, which is so much better than how they chose to parent or are choosing to parent. It's it's the voice uh, you know those angry diatribes of these kind of political influencers on one side or the other that make you feel better. Than the less enlightened around you. It's the, the false prophets you know, who have the, the cynical confidence of the deconstructor, right? Who can take something that spiritually you held dear. You know, they can take your faith like a child and just pick it apart, that you're left with nothing. It's the voice of uh, you know, the self-assured kind of machismo of that, you know, that big tough man promising you know, muscular gains and uh, and a steady stream of income, you know, from like passive income, you know, that sort of thing. You know, these are the false prophets. And every time, you know, you get on on Instagram or YouTube, you see these people. Why? Because they have a message that's appealing. And so you stick around long enough to listen to what they have to say. And then that social media says, oh man, they like this stuff. Let's give them some more. Let's keep feeding them these messages. And they influence us. And Zechariah sees the day when such false prophets will be ashamed of their words, ashamed of of the things they said, the promises they made about what would bring fulfillment. In verse 5, they'll deny that they ever pretended to be an influencer. Verse 6, if if somebody asks the false prophet, you know, what are those wounds on your back? Maybe you thought, "What, what is he talking about there? So apparently this, you know, wounds on your back, it actually means, you know, wounds somewhere between your hands. So it could be on the back or it could be on the chest. If you remember that, that story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, you know, he's going toe to toe with all these false prophets and in their, you know, passionate desire for Baal to, to show up and act and, and defeat the God of Yahweh. What do they start doing? They start cutting themselves. They start wounding themselves. And so Zechariah sees this day, that somebody would see these wounds of the false prophet and say, how'd you get those wounds? And the false prophet would say this, and this is actually really important. He says, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. The false prophet bought into this message of fulfillment too. This message, this, this false hope that will only leave you wounded if you're to follow it. He says, yeah, that's, I got it from my friends and the ones I thought would take care of me from, from the voices, the false promises. That's where I got these wounds. The gift, the third gift that's given after repentance and forgiveness is victory over idols, victory over these false hopes. And of course, we know that this day that Zechariah sees it was, a, it was a long day, right? It started on Good Friday, but this day isn't yet over. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of this day when these idols are put away forever. But we are given now a gift of discernment discernment to, to know truth from falsehood. And the measuring line that we're given is the cross. So anytime you hear a message that promises fulfillment of some kind, judge it. By the cross. The cross isn't a symbolic victory of Jesus, but it's a real victory. It's a real, actual, historical victory of Jesus over the powers of sin, the flesh, and the devil. And so beware, beware of any message that would say you can find fulfillment separate from suffering. The Lord's going to lead you through suffering and out of it. That's the message of the cross, that we can't escape suffering, but the message is that the Lord can redeem any suffering. So beware of a message that says you can get around it. Beware of any kind of message that says you can get around your responsibility to love your neighbor, or that you can get around any responsibility to love God. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is sacrificial love, and Jesus' word to us is to take up your cross and follow me. Beware of any message that says otherwise. Beware of any message that says you can be fulfilled apart from communion with Christ and his body. You cannot. We are not made for fulfillment separate from the Lord Jesus. So beware of any message that says you can find fulfillment outside of the church or somewhere else you can't. You can only find fulfillment in Jesus. That's the message of the cross. The gift is discernment of his victory over these powers. We'll conclude there. This is what Zechariah sees, these three gifts. The gift of repentance, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of victory. Given these gifts, given to the ones who are the very most undeserving, but given because God's love will have the final victory. Amen? Given to the ones who are undeserving because God's love will have the final victory. And so, the encouragement for us today, this is wonderful timing, halfway through Lent, just over halfway through Lent, is to receive the gifts that God wants to give you. We take this time to meditate on Christ's death and resurrection. And when he looks at you, he is not disappointed with you, but his spirit is in you saying, come home. Now is the time to come home. Maybe you've started these Lenten disciplines, and so far you failed at most of them. You don't have to say amen, but I'm sure that some of us in this room. You picked up some Lenten disciplines, the ones that you knew you needed, and it's just been a total failure. Well, today's a new start to lean into the grace that Jesus provides. Pick those up again to become weak before the Lord so that he can fill you up with his strength. This is what Lent is all about, going deeper into the mystery, the true mystery of God's love for us in the death and resurrection, his son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.